This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. I've talked before about how I really enjoy the TV show Sliders. I love the concept of it more than the implementation, especially the later few years of this show. And basically what Sliders was, was a show that explored parallel worlds. What would the world have been like if the United States lost the, um, you know, uh, lost the Revolutionary War? What would the what would America be like if um, uh, Texas remained an independent country and uh, and things stayed that way? You know, it was all these interesting concepts. And there's this whole genre of fiction that explores something uh, stuff like that. I think it's called allo history, I think, where it explores what things would be like if this happened or that happened. And. Over the course of the last decade, but especially over the course of the last year, I have spent a lot of time wondering what would this country be like if we had listened to Theodore Roosevelt in the year 1912. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. I prefer to work with moderate, with rational conservatives, provided only that they do in good faith strive forward towards the light. But when they halt and turn their backs to the light, sit with the scorners on the seats of reaction, then I must part company with them. We, the people, cannot turn back. Our aim must be steady, wise bonds. It would be well if our people would study the history of a sister republic. All the woes of France for a century and a quarter had been due to the folly of her people in splitting into the two camps of unreasonable conservatism and unreasonable radicalism. Had free revolutionary France listened to men like Turgot and backed them up, all would have gone well. But the beneficiaries of privilege, the Bourbon reactionaries, the short-sighted ultra-conservatives turned down Turgot and then found that instead of him they had obtained Robespierre. I look, that was Theodore Roosevelt uh, campaigning in 1912 uh, when he was seeking to return to the presidency after having left the presidency four years earlier. I look at what we as a country have allowed the Supreme Court to do over the course of the last 120 years, and it makes me want to pull my hair out. Now, um, I am strongly of the belief that most of the fundamental decisions about policy in America should be made by the voters. And it's like Theodore Roosevelt said when he kicked off his campaign. The fundamental question we've got to face is, are the American people fit to govern themselves? Well, the consensus among conservative legal scholars Dem, uh, liberal legal scholars, conservative politicians, liberal politicians appears to be, no, we're not fit to govern ourselves. Woodrow Wilson and William Howard Taft, who were running against Theodore Roosevelt in that campaign, one conservative, one, you know, kind of liberal, they, they basically had the same approach when it came to the court system, which we're going to find out in a minute. But the thing that I don't understand is, Why the voters tolerate this? Why legislators tolerate this? Why have we allowed nine unelected judges to be a veto council over the will of the American people and our democratically elected representatives on both the federal and the state level and the municipal level? 
It makes no sense. And I'm of the opinion that uh, we'd be better off today had we listened to the warnings of Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. Someone who has done an incredible job in terms of his scholarship on this era in American history and this question specifically is Logan Stagg East. He's an independent historian in Louisiana, and uh, his work has dealt extensively with the nature of constitutional politics during the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. And he said in an article, which I shared on my Facebook page uh, at facebook.com slash MoranoFan, 9,000 times more articulately and far better research than I could ever hope to be, pretty much what I wished I was smart enough to say. I had him on last week, and the response to this discussion was phenomenal. A lot of people writing in disagreeing with my approach and with Theodore Roosevelt's approach, and a lot of people saying, you know, I'm interested. I want to learn more. I want to learn more. So we've invited him back for a full hour, and we'll do our best to answer your questions as well at 800-848-9222. Logan Stagg East, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me back. All right. So um, I guess the the, – one of the fundamental things that we hear about the Supreme Court, and I'm curious about your your view on this question, is that they are a co-equal branch of government. And the fact that the legislature can uh, make laws and the uh, executive can enforce laws and the courts can interpret the laws, that creates a nice equilibrium that keeps ever, any branch from getting too powerful. It's a separation of powers. But – there really isn't anything in the Constitution that I see that says they are a co-equal branch of government. What is your take on the concept of the court being a co-equal branch of government and the idea of separation of powers in general? That's a great question. And uh, as far as how the founders viewed it whenever they wrote the document, I would argue that a lot of them really thought that the primary branch of government was the legislature. Uh, whenever we look at it today, of course, you know, I think most people probably look at the executive branch, the presidency as the leading role, and that's not really what was intended at the time. But that's at the court, I think, does serve a very important role, and it, it is a necessary role. Uh, whether it's equal or not is, is hard to say. I, w- I would say, no, it's not quite equal, but its role as interpreter is is important. Um, the question really is, okay, what are the limits of that interpretive power? Uh, what is its just application? Well, let's talk about the limits of that interpretive power. There have been so many cases over the years that liberals and conservatives have been upset with. Conservatives were not at all happy with Roe versus Wade. Uh, liberals were not at all happy with the Citizens United decision. Conservatives were not at all happy with the decision on uh, gay marriage. Uh, liberals were not at all happy with the with the gun case, the Heller case. Uh, it seems like both sides, conservatives and liberals, were very upset over the eminent domain case in the Keogh decision. Why don't more modern politician, uh, pol- political figures, think tanks, uh, members of Congress, seek to bring out more Theodore Roosevelt-style solutions and push for a popular constitution rather than just continue to accept this rule by judicial fiat? That's a great question, and... Part of the problem is that whenever you make an attack against the Supreme Court, and I want to be careful with, you know, we don't want to slip into demagoguery. We don't want to, because the judges do serve a necessary role of some kind. We want to get into that throughout this hour. Um, But there is a perception that when you attack the court, you're attacking our entire constitutional order, because most Americans believe that there should be some limits on what popular government can do. Uh, we can't just make up the rules as we go. Otherwise, we can fall into tyranny. And the judges, you know, they're draped in serious black robes. There's a reason for that. And to attack their decision seems to be like, okay, well, you just want to change the rules now that you didn't get what you want. And sometimes that is what is happening. Um, The last time a politician really tried to tinker with the Supreme Court famously is Franklin Roosevelt's court packing scheme. Now, he wasn't doing what I think is a reasonable thing to do, but it looked like he was upset with the rulings of the judges, which, you know, judges seem to be good people, interpret the Constitution. 
And so it seems as if you're attacking the constitutional order. And most people don't have the time to spend to really get into the details to see why that's not always accurate. Now, um, you mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his plan to pack the court, the uh, the conventional narrative. And you can correct any areas that have uh, you know, been misinterpreted by historians over the last 80 years. But the conventional narrative is that the uh, the court was striking down a lot of New Deal legislation that was very important to President Roosevelt, and he proposed this plan to pack the court and allow himself to appoint a justice for every justice that was over a certain age, which would allow him to have a lot more appointments, presumably appointments that would not then nullify uh, these pet legislative projects of his. And then uh, the court kind of they, they got intimidated into not nullifying the uh, laws that were passed by Congress and signed by the president. In in your view, did Theodore Roosevelt's candidacy and his attacks on the court and their uh, nullification of uh, certain decisions uh, regarding, you know, business interests and so forth, did that pave the way uh, for his cousin Franklin's attack on the court 20, 30 years later? Uh, Yes and no, in that both Roosevelt's believed that the way that the court was interpreting the Constitution was out of touch with where both common understandings of the law were. And I I mean, I don't have the quotes from Franklin, but the quotes from Roosevelt, he believed that the court was out of line with how even older Americans like Lincoln or Washington would have viewed the Constitution uh, in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, though, and, and both of them are dealing with what's called the Lochner era, uh, a philosophy behind interpreting the Constitution we can get into if you want. Um, and But the threat of possibly tinkering with the Supreme Court is what, as you said, led to the switch in time that saved nine. And that was the West uh, – West Coast Hotel versus Parish or Parish versus West Coast Hotel, which upheld a state's right to have a minimum wage. Um, and so actually the threat, even though it cost them a lot of popularity, conservatives take back Congress, uh, resulted in the court kind of bending its way. Uh, it's a similar motivation, but Franklin is missing the point. Franklin is threatening to change the composition of the Supreme Court. I want my umpire's in there as opposed to the other teams, mm. whereas Teddy Roosevelt was saying, no, the people need a check on the power, not just let's tinker around with the membership of the court. Uh, interesting. And uh, that is such an important distinction. Franklin accepted the uh, the proposition that the court has the rule, the ability to nullify laws. And uh, Theodore was challenging that ability, at least aspirationally. Correct. Yeah, that's interesting. So you you use the phrase judicial supremacy in your piece and um, the way a lot of people use the term judicial review. Now, I know you have said you consider yourself a conservative. Why do not that you can speak for all conservatives, but why do, in your opinion, why do conservatives bow to this doctrine of judicial supremacy when there is a conservative Congress, a conservative governor, a conservative president? Why don't more conservative legislators or politicians do what Andrew Jackson did and ignore what the court uh, decides to do on in terms of nullifying a law, for instance? Well, I think it's because the well of nullification has been poisoned very badly by figures like John C. Calhoun, the Civil War, uh, the civil rights movement, other instances, and and that leaves a very powerful negative legacy in that direction, even though it can be used as a broad brush to criticize any attempts to criticize what judges are saying. But I think the conservatives tend to feel a loyalty, which I will admit I feel in my heart as well, to the system that we have, the Constitution as it stands, and believing that you know the judiciary is a part of that constitutional plan and that, well, you know, we have to honor the procedures and format and not get too rowdy with it. I think that that is a 20th century attitude, not a 19th century Mm -hmm. attitude. Mm -hmm. Where did the idea 
of checks and balances as it relates to the court and the legislative branch. Uh, where did that come from? Was it just uh, made up out of whole cloth in, in Marbury, or was there some movement for a check on the legislative passions of the day? Yeah, no, it's definitely not made up in Marbury. Well, I don't. judicial review is what we get out of Marbury, and we can talk about that. The idea of checks and balances, the division of powers, is an Enlightenment idea first. Montesquieu, sort of, uh, right? Yeah, Montesquieu, exactly, the laws. And he said he observed parts of that in the English parliamentary system. But then whenever we are writing, you know, they write the Constitution at the convention, and there is this great debate over are they going to ratify the Constitution. And many people at the time, many anti-federalists who opposed the Constitution, said this was going to concentrate far too much power in the federal government, and some of them even criticized the potential court. But James Madison, as well as John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, famously in the Federalist Papers, came up with arguments for why the Constitution was the real deal while it was good. And Madison famously articulated the vision under a false, you know, under Publius as his name, you know, said that the separation of powers, each branch will check the other, and thus we will prevent centralizing tyranny. But the idea of the Supreme Court having that powerful authority comes with Alexander Hamilton, really in Federalist 78, where he proposes – he doesn't say judicial review. That term doesn't come around till like 1914. But uh, he proposes a power that the, the magistracy, that the court will be able to uh, uphold strong laws against the popular passions and masses. And some anti-Federalists said at the time that, you know, well, they might be able to rule whatever they want. But in in and I've read uh, Federalist 78 and what Hamilton said there. But what he says, he was very specific. What he says is that they can they can do that only when there's an irreconcilable variance between what the legislature is doing and uh, and what the Constitution says. Now, if five justices can view uh, a question one way and four view it another way, I mean, that's hardly irreconcilable. But if uh, if they wanted to pass a law that said there's 105 senators instead of 100, that's a pretty cl- clear irreconcilable variance. I mean, I have to think that uh, we're light years from where Hamilton viewed the Supreme Court exercising this power. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, that basic position, and I'm going to, you know, this is a loaded term, but it's a textualist position. It's saying, okay, because we have to say, well, what is the Constitution? And we're, we're talking about a popular Constitution here. The Constitution was a popular document that was ratified by every state now, you know, by an electorate that today is sometimes criticized as being too narrow, but for its time was a very broad electorate. And the each part of the Constitution was proposed by delegates elected by the states, and then each amendment was passed and ratified by the states. And so what we have in the Constitution is popular law. And what the idea is, is that law has to be interpreted and enforced uh, but if if a judge begins to make up his own, you know, insert, you know, legislate from the bench, as it's called, um, that would be illegitimate. And Hamilton said, that, well, they, that won't happen. They'll be bound by strict precedents and procedures. Um, but the reality is, you know, someone has to make a judgment call. And you know, under judicial supremacy, we kind of accept that, that final judgment call is the court. But it was Teddy Roosevelt and others in the 19th century said, well, you know, maybe not so fast. Uh, talking with Logan Stagg East, uh, he's a, a terrific independent historian in Louisiana that has uh, studied and written extensively about the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. We'll take your questions shortly at one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll talk about some of the court, uh, ca- the, some of the cases the court has been deciding recently, and how that affects politics as we know it, the future of politics, and constitutional government in general. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She would never say where she came from. Yesterday don't matter if it's gone. 
While the sun is bright Or in the darkest night No one knows She comes and goes It is Tuesday. For some of us, it's a Ruby Tuesday whenever you get to listen to the Rolling Stones. Uh, Talking a little bit about the election of 1912 and the warnings that Theodore Roosevelt offered to the nation about the direction that we would be heading and the uh, alternatives that he offered in terms of getting the Supreme Court not to be able to run roughshod over the will of the American people. Here's a little bit of Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. In order to succeed we need leaders of inspired idealism, leaders to whom are granted great visions, who dream greatly and strive to make their dreams come true, who can kindle the people with the fire from their own burning souls. The leader for the time being, whoever he may be, is but an instrument to be used until broken and then to be cast aside. And if he is worth his salt, he will care no more when he is broken than a soldier cares when he is sent where his life is forfeit in order that the victory may be won. In the long fight for righteousness, the watchword for all of us is spend and be spent. Uh, We're talking with Logan Stagg East. He's a historian that's written about this era a great deal. The Republican in that in that election, because Theodore Roosevelt, although he'd spent most of his political career as a Republican, he ran as the candidate of the Progressive or Bull Moose Party. And uh, Logan, I, I am curious. The, uh, uh, president Taft has the distinction of being the only president ever to go on to serve on the Supreme Court. He'd had a pretty accomplished career as a judge and seemed very protective of the role of judges in general and uh, very, very responsive to any attacks that he perceived to be on the judiciary. How much of Theodore Roosevelt's criticism was personal because of Taft's history as a judge? That's a great point. And actually, uh, so the article we're talking about is a popular article I wrote, but a peer review article I wrote that is at at the same material focuses a lot on the judges who ran for president at this time. When Roosevelt ran in 1904, he ran against Alton Parker from New York, who was the chief justice on the uh, Court of Appeals in New York. And uh, he also, Charles Evans Hughes, ran in 1916, who himself left the Supreme Court to run for president as a Republican. And Taft was a judge in the 1890s. And then again, as you said, the Supreme Court uh, justice after being president. And so, I mean, part of it is personal, a lot of, or at least for Taft. Taft knows that he's not going to become president. He he realizes that, but he wants to stop Roosevelt from becoming president because he believes Roosevelt is dangerous. He believes that Roosevelt is going to mobilize the people in a way that will tear down the foundations of a constitutional republic because Taft believes that the court is necessary to upholding that system. Well, and Woodrow Wilson was the Democrat who subsequently ended up yes. winning. And uh, where was he on the issues that Theodore Roosevelt was raising as it relates to the Supreme Court? So if if I'll be honest, Wilson, uh, he understood many things, but he only had he had vague opinions on the court and vague opinions on finance. So Wilson was really just trying not to upset anyone so that he could win, which is reasonable. Uh, but Wilson thought that talking, you know, talking about radically changing the court uh, as he perceived it, was a dangerous step. And so ultimately he said, well, we need to pass progressive legislation, but the court is actually an engine for change and for reinterpreting the Constitution as opposed to the sort of stuffy conservative vision people thought Taft was promoting. But Wilson and Taft are both going to agree on the principle that the court's word is final. We need to go through Mm -hmm. the legal process. But Wilson will have the sort of living constitution model that we're used to talking about, whereas Taft is going to have more of a textualist approach. How did Theodore Roosevelt's views on the court jive with other prominent American leaders throughout history? Namely, let's say, maybe we could start with the other three people that happen to be on Mount Rushmore. 
<laughs> that's a that's a great way to do it. Um, so let's take Lincoln. Right? Lincoln, I quoted in the article a bit because Roosevelt's Lincoln was Roosevelt's hero in the way that Washington was Lincoln's hero, and Lincoln famously, you know, in the wake of the Dred Scott decision in 1857, one of the most infamous court decisions ever. Um, Lincoln, you know, said that what the court is doing right now is wrong, and it's our duty as Americans to say it's wrong and to resist it, because what the court did in Dred Scott was not, you know, textualism. What it did was it asserted the absolute right of slaveholders against the popular laws of the states, against the popular law of the legislature, and overturned the Missouri Compromise. Um, and with Washington, uh, admittedly, Washington, poor guy, never had much time to actually see the court in action. He died in, I think, 1799. Uh, Jefferson, um, oddly enough, was the beneficiary of the Marbury versus Madison decision, right, because he was able to take get rid of some of John Adams's midnight justices. Mm. Um, but Jefferson had a very obviously popular view of the Constitution. He's probably the most radical of any of the guys on that um, out of the four. And he thought, you know, the Constitution should be very freely amended as each new generation needed it. So uh, putting Washington aside then, because as you said, he didn't say much about uh, uh, the court and really didn't, um, you know, see Marbury in action, let alone the consequences of Marbury. Is it better for the people to make decisions about policy? There's a lot of folks that think, all right, the people could pass some crazy legislation. They could elect some crazy folks to the to Congress or to the state legislature that they might pass crazy legislation. Isn't it better to have um, nine accomplished, brilliant legal theorists, even if they're whether they're conservative or liberal? Isn't it better to have those guys be sort of a cooling saucer on the on the tempers of the public? Why might it be better to have uh, some deference to the voters and to the uh, democratically elected representatives of the voters rather than the court? Well, we do need, you know, checks. It's always good to have a second look. But the people who the way it's actually played out in history is not that way. The people who have made the radical sweeping changes to the common understanding of things are usually the court. Now, we do need the court to make sure, yeah, there is not a lynch mob. There is not some outrageous stripping of well-accepted rights. But usually, in the cases we're talking about, it's when the court takes a view and interpretation that is out of line with what most Americans are thinking and no, I'm not talking necessarily about the recent decisions. You know, if you go back into the 20th century, when the Roe v. Wade decision was originally made, that was a very radical sweeping change in the order of things. If you go to the Dred Scott decision, uh, that shocked the nation. It was an upsetting thing. It wasn't the people who made a ridiculous law in 1857 so much as the court overturned the reasonable laws they had made. And the last thing I'll say on that, so I don't go too long, is that you have to understand that the Constitution was made by the people. The court isn't is mm. supposed to interpret what it says and say, yeah, the people may do some crazy things, but the court may do some crazy things. And at the end of the day, you know, the court can't the court's will can't trump the will of the people in the long run. One of the phrases that um, I always hear thrown around, uh, directed at me, I think it's from Tocqueville initially, and uh, it, whenever I talk about deferring to the people rather than the courts on policy matters, is, oh, no, 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 you need to be careful about the tyranny of the majority. Uh, right. what, what, what about that? How do we prevent 51 percent of, uh, of the voters from enslaving the other 49 percent? All right. Well, would you prefer the tyranny of the minority? <laughs> that's, I mean, the, the, that's the, what I always say, which is what we have. Is, right. And and they're right. I mean, cooler heads need to prevail. Sure. But if you actually go I mean, if you go down the line and look at some when the court, the court is allowed to strike down laws that are flagrantly unconstitutional. OK, that's that's fine. The court and I, I think the court should have first crack at those issues. But when the court just radically misses the mark, there needs to be a mechanism for the people to correct that. Because, yeah, we 
we need to have informed decisions on things. That's why we vote for legislatures, and we don't all do it ourselves, okay? But when the legislature messes up, we have a right to recall them. We have a right to throw them out of office. And so, um, you know, the tyranny of the majority is is a problem, but there is no perfect solution. Either ultimately sovereignty lies with the people or it lies somewhere else. And in America, there really is no – I mean, can you justify a longstanding minority uh, rule in any kind of case? No, you really can't because all of the rights that we hold dear – Say the First Amendment, right? Well, who gave us that right? I mean, we can say on a moral level, maybe God or the Creator, but in practice, a legislature gave us that right. And that's something that has to be remembered is that all these rights that protect the minority were granted by the majority. Uh, Chung with Logan East about uh, the Supreme Court and uh, Theodore Roosevelt's case for a popular constitution. You mentioned even conservatives who've been hurt by judicial supremacy now accept it for the most part as just a, a modern pillar of government, just the way that things are these days. Is this loss of what I'll, I'll call power from the Demo- from from the people, is this loss of populist power irrevocable in your view? Well, unfortunately, things tend to have to get pretty bad before changes are made. That's just how we kind of operate as a people, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the real tricky part here is, which we touched on last time, is uh, as long as it's working for your team, it's really hard to convince yourself to change it. And the people who are empowered to change it are those who have won elections. But those who have won elections are also in a position where they might appoint justices. And so the frustration is really the frustration of the political minority, and that makes it difficult to accomplish much change. Do I? Well, and, and let me put it this way. Uh, if something's wrong, we have to say that it's wrong, and we can't really concern ourselves with political right. uh, likelihoods because that's the kind of thinking that ensures nothing ever changes. Like, you know, was the abolition of slavery likely in 1840? No, it was not, but people said it was wrong. The um, Where do you come down on the issue of ending life tenure for Supreme Court justices? If that were to occur, do you think that would make it more likely or less likely that the, the justices would be so cavalier with disregarding the uh, clearly stated will of the voters on issue after issue? No. And, and I actually am, and this may seem going counter to what we've been talking about. I am really, I don't think any reform as to term limits or shuffling is really going to fix anything, because all you're doing there is saying, uh, I want to be able to choose the justice with supreme power more frequently. I think the judges do need to be insulated from the people as far as terms. I don't think they should run for office. They should be able to make up their minds and be able to read the law, study the law, study history, and say, no, this is what I honestly think the law is. Right. They should they shouldn't be fearful of the people and give them just what they want. Um, But if they do err in a significant because the judges, by and large, are good people. They don't stay up in the middle of the night thinking, how can I deprive the the people of their rights or or deprive them of their popular sovereignty? Um, They should have the first crack in an independent kind of way. Uh, But it's only in a rare it's we're talking about a small handful of landmark cases. Right. That are the problems. And so I'm not talking about, you know, the daily uh, many, many cases that come to the court that really are kind of arcane legal matters. The um, well, for instance, here in New York, um, the decision to uh, do away with New York's uh, you know restrictions on concealed carry weapons, a lot of folks in New York, New Jersey, California believe that they should have the ability to regulate gun laws as they see fit. On the other hand, uh, with the abortion restrictions that were removed in Roe versus Wade, that was taking away that ability from uh, from the voters. It is um, it is, so if the solution is not. Um, what is the solution, do you think? Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. as we said last time, was a little bit vague in terms of how he would address this. He didn't necessarily have a uh, a concrete plan for how the voters should be able to redress the Supreme Court's errors. But what's yours? 
Well, if, if you don't mind, can I get to the specifics of, of the first please, issue yes, of the two please. court cases? So uh, we need to think carefully because so often in the public discussion, we turn into a – they're overriding the will of the people or, or whatever. Let's look at the specifics of what was decided in each case. So in the case of the New York gun law that was overturned, uh, if I have it right, uh, New York had passed a law which said that in order to get a concealed carry permit, you had to submit a a rationale, basically a stated need for it, and the review board would decide whether or not that was uh, reasonable. And the court said, no, that's putting – that's basically leaving it up to a bureaucrat somewhere to decide whether or not you get to own a firearm or hold a firearm in public because I don't believe New York has open carry. Um and so the argument was, well, the Second Amendment says you have a right to bear arms, and this is kind of putting an arbitrary limit on that. But that at least has a Second Amendment grounding. Now, you can disagree with the judgment. That's, it's a judgment call. Um, whereas in the case of Roe v. Wade, it's, it, you're right, it's doing the same thing. It's Roe versus Wade said legislatures can't prohibit abortion, so the people can't make laws. Like this says New York can't prohibit firearms in that way. Uh, but – in the case of Roe v. Wade, the basis was a vague right to privacy discovered mm. over a long period of time in the 14th Amendment, which was meant to grant citizenship to people, especially freed slaves. And so one is, a, in my mind, a greater leap of logic. But what's the solution? Um, it's difficult. What I proposed in the article is just sort of throwing out there was something that I called a, a dissenting majority, which was a play on John C. Calhoun's concurrent majority. Um, and I said, well, maybe if you could have two versions, right, maybe a supermajority of Congress or 30 of the 50 states, something like that could vote to reverse a judicial ruling or to uphold a statute that was passed as a sort of popular check. It would need to be high. We don't want it to be 51%. Otherwise, you know, it turns into a very flippant thing that's done all the time. We don't want it to be that way. We want it to be similar to an amendment process, but admittedly easier than a constitutional amendment. All right. Uh, I have been uh, hogging your wisdom, and a lot of people are very eager to talk with you. We will take folks' phone calls next. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with Logan East straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It comes on like a rose, but everybody knows she'll get you in touch. You can look, but you better not touch. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Logan Stag East. We'll take your calls momentarily, 800-848-9222. He is a scholar of the progressive era, the Gilded Age. Uh, By the way, Logan, the the word progressive has sort of become anathema to conservatives. They picture sort of an imaginary hybrid between Bernie Sanders and Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, putting all the uh, conservatives in internment camps somewhere. Should that word progressive be anathema to conservatives? As I mentioned, Theodore Roosevelt did run with the progressive party in 1912. Um, well, as as long as these terms evolve over time, and what I point out in the article, and I point out especially in some of my other work, is that at the time in the progressive era, Roosevelt called himself a conservative, and he called himself a progressive. Taft called himself a conservative and a progressive. Wilson called himself a conservative 
and a progressive, because both of them were, all of them were thinking in evolutionary terms. They thought that we should conserve what was valuable in society. At that time, any sane statesman thought of himself as a conservative. He wanted to keep the inheritance from the founders, but also they believed that society progressed. We could improve on things and become more civilized. Today, there is really no consensus uh, in the political spectrum mm over traditional values, over what our history is, what it means. what And so really, I mean, conservative doesn't it, – it's a disposition, but what are you conserving? Are you conser- Most conservatives today don't really like the America they look at when they see it. So are you trying to conserve it or are you trying to go back? Progressives, similarly, you know, can't really call them conservatives except in the sense that they want to conserve – Roe versus Wade, but that's just the 1960s and 70s. So, it, it, no, we shouldn't we shouldn't treat a term like it's you know uh, voodoo or black magic or something to be avoided. It's just a word that changes over time. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi. Uh, as always, you do a great show. Thank you. Okay, now Clarence Thomas is an originalist. Apparently, he wants to go back to the 1700s. Now. Loving versus Virginia and the Emancipation Proclamation were not in effect during the 1700s. If he repeals gay marriage, he cannot cherry pick what he's going to repeal. I mean, if we're going to go back in time, maybe we should go back completely. And where would that leave him? Well, also, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was before the 13th and 14th Amendment, Diana, so it's not as if either that would, would bring back slavery. But I'll let uh, I'll let Logan answer. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, Diana, I, I mean, I, I disagree with some of the details, but I like the general direction you're going in the sense that, well, if you're going to make an argument, be consistent. And if you've got Clarence Thomas in the room, he's going to tell you probably that, yeah, he, he would, well, he probably wouldn't repeal uh, Virginia versus Loving based on his understanding of um, the 14th Amendment. Uh, But he might roll back Obergefell. Now, I don't believe most of the justices on the court were willing to do that, but uh, was Obergefell uh, reasonably grounded in the 14th Amendment? Uh, I mean, they wouldn't have said that until 2014, Mm. so maybe so. But, But to your point, would states then criminalize gay marriage if Obergefell were overturned. I definitely don't think so. Roe versus Wade is overturned, and many progressive states have doubled down on abortion rights while conservative states have gotten rid of them, whereas gay marriage, the conservative movement has not been as aggressive against that as they have with things like abortion. Uh, But if you're being legally consistent, then I think probably Obergefell would go in Thomas's originalist worldview, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't push him on Virginia versus Loving. I know that's kind of a hip thing to do, but uh, Thomas has a pretty broad view of personal liberty under the Fourteenth. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, sir, I have a particular incident I wish to ask you about. During the administration of Andrew Jackson, I think you will both agree that one of the darkest chapters in American history, barbaric as it was, was the Indian Removal Act. Now, if I remember right, 15,000 people, simply because of the fact that there were gold-hungry folks in Georgia and North Carolina who wanted the lands, caused Andrew Jackson to simply take all those tribal people, 15,000, ship them 1,000 miles out west, where 4,000 died. We know the story of the Trail of Tears. They still tell it in the Cherokee circles. Uh, The court, I believe, in that case said, no, Jackson couldn't do it. And what did he do? He dismissed it. He said, let the court defend their own action. Um, Uh, uh, Any any reaction to Jackson's defiance of the court, Logan? Yeah, that's a great point, actually. And it is one of the darker chapters in American history. And I would say to you that you're you're absolutely right. Um, what Jackson did was was frankly wrong. And he, the apocryphal quote is, you know, Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. The joke being that he has no army to enforce it. But that's just the point, right? Ultimately, our rights are not defended by the court. Our rights are defended by the people. And when the majority chose tyranny, there was no court in the world that was going to stop them. The only thing is the court can really uh, temporarily frustrate them if they're willing to listen. But if a bad majority is really going to do something tyrannical, 
then there's not a court that's going to stop them. You, you end the, uh, the quote in um, an American Affairs Journal with another quote from one of my favorite historical figures, uh, James Garfield, about who gets to rule. Uh, what did Garfield have to say about who gets to rule? Garfield said, and it's, it's a cool quote, he said, you know, the sovereign right of the people to, to make and unmake constitutions resides solely in them and is transmitted to each new generation of voters. And he, you know, also talked about the high court of public opinion and of war. And what, I mean, Garfield lived through the Civil War. And what Garfield saw in the Civil War was ultimately it was not court decisions that decided who was free and who was unfree, who was in the Union and who wasn't in the Union. When push came to shove, it came down to Americans, you know, fighting it out. Now, hopefully not in an actual war, but your rights are only defended if you and your neighbors are willing to defend them. And and I believe he understood the people's sovereign power in that very real respect. And I, I kind of think he took that experience into that quote. Um, there is a case coming out of North Carolina that uh, could reach the Supreme Court and have some pretty interesting consequences. It has to do with um, a a theory called, um, you know, the the independent state legislature doctrine, which would essentially allow the state legislature to select a slate of electors pledged to a candidate irrespective of how the voters may have uh, may have voted in that state's election. And in theory, anyway, that could uh, deliver a state uh, to, uh, uh, you know, a presidential candidate that didn't win it in a popular election. This has a lot of folks that were leery of, um, you know, some of President Trump's conduct in the aftermath of 2020 has them very nervous. This could certainly reach the Supreme Court. Uh, have you had an opportunity to look at this case and where where do you see it and how do you think the court will come down on it? Well, the what they're referring to is because in the Constitution, it says basically the way that elections, federal elections are decided and allocated shall be up to the legislature of each state. That's what it says. And whenever the Constitution was first, whenever we first started out as a republic, right, most states did not have popular elections. They had legislatures decide. And then eventually the legislature saw fit to devolve those decisions to popular votes. Um, but in theory, the constitutional authority lies with the legislature um, and they choose to have popular votes. Well, you know, it's it is difficult to say. Because the counter argument is that well, a court should be able to validate things. Because how do how do people speak to make laws but through their representatives? Um, so it's it's a difficult one. I don't know how the court will come down on it. To be perfectly honest with you, if they came down in favor of the legislature, it wouldn't terribly surprise me. Um, but I also don't think. I mean, I, I well, I don't want to say it's not going to be a big deal. I don't know would be the short answer. Uh, Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Frank, you need to invite this guy to your barbecue and pay his travel. Uh, you'll write a book one day about uh, politics, Frank. You have too much intellectual curiosity and knowledge not to. Uh, I think right now the court is using uh, the bench to set policy. Uh, and I'll give an example. With the Roe v. Wade case, a friend of mine brought up the option – of uh, Indian nation territories in states like South Dakota and Oklahoma opening up abortion clinics because they're not subject to uh, federal sovereignty. And then within a week after Roe v. Wade being overturned, there was a case that went under the radar and not reported uh, where they actually took that sovereign power away uh, within a week later. So that is something that I'm essentially throwing out there for discussion. I think the legislative branch right now has become the weakest branch in government for a number of reasons. The number one being that they're, all they do is campaign and raise money all the time. I think a three-year term for the U.S. House of Representatives would help solve that problem because that would give them an extra 12 months to actually set policy and make laws. Uh, my practical experience with these types of things, if you look at it, uh, County executives uh, can set policy in their budgets 
if the county legislatures aren't doing their job. Right, Chris, we're just uh, about out of time here, so I'll, please bring your thought to a close, and I'll ask Logan to respond. And, and, state, and I think state budgets do the same, like, say, Governor Cuomo. And unfortunately, the state legislature, they only have uh, 58 to 60 scheduled days, and they're, they're only in business, like, less than four months out of the year when you take the vacations out. The state legislature in New York can't compete with the executive branch because the governor's and his aides are in business 12 months out of the year. Thank thank you, Chris. Any reaction to sort of uh, how the legislative branch has been weakened um, because of practical concerns like the ones that Chris mentions? Well, I I largely agree. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it was H.L. Mencken who said, or Bernard Shaw, I forget who, but, but they basically said that democracy is a form of government that guarantees that the people get exactly what they deserve or exactly what they want in kind of a dark humor sense in that our, our voters and also our legislators have become lazy, for lack of a better word, and gradually over time gave away lots of authority and basically you know, the executive sets policy. And they're supposed to vote up or down on an issue, and they've lost a lot of their independent role as the originators of laws and policies and commissions and investigations, uh, because even the investigations they do now are mostly meant to rally up people for elections more than actually get to the bottom of something. Um, and so I, I largely agree with what was said. Is the Supreme Court too busy making decisions about constitutional law Instead of deciding cases, in your view, meaning, uh, you know, cases that again. is the Supreme Court too busy making decisions about constitutional law instead of deciding individual cases that may not be confirming or or nullifying certain right. legislation? Not necessarily. Um, I think most of them would be happy outside of the spotlight, honestly. Uh, and they get thrust into it a lot of the time. And a lot of cases that are not very significant go unnoticed all the time. And it's just the big ones that we pay a lot of attention to. I think that 90 percent of what the justices do is totally fine. Uh, but on the big issues that really are consequential, uh, there should be some kind of popular opportunity to check those. Um, Logan. I could talk with you all day. Uh, Hopefully we can chat again soon. I very much appreciate you being so generous with your time. I know it's a late night and it's a big ask uh, for you to uh, give this amount of time and uh, sound this intelligent this this late. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And and anytime, Frank, you have a good one. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Coming up in a moment... We'll talk Tony Danza. What other show can go from the Supreme Court to Tony Danza? This is The Other Side of Midnight. Aliens, the Supreme Court, Tony Danza. You never know what you're going to get. Keep asking questions.